appreciate it. Beautiful, as always. Good morning, everyone. Lord bless you this morning, and uh, thank you for being here. And for those of you who are joining us online, we really thank you also. Uh, we have a prayer meeting tonight. We hope that you will find time to come and join us at 6 p.m. from 6 to 7. Um, there's information on our website how you can link up to that. And we're looking forward to getting together again, but a um, couple more weeks, right? That's what we hear. So uh, the elders and I will meet after service today and talk about what that's going to look like here at Calvary Chapel Arrowhead when we finally get released to go outside. Don't you feel like a bunch of kids that have been kept inside all summer and you're just chomping at the bit to get outside? Well, we're going to talk about what would be appropriate, what will be appropriate social distancing here, how we'll arrange the chairs. Uh, we're going to have the whole church sanitized before you come to church during the service, planning on getting the bathrooms cleaned at least once or twice um, while you are here. And um, of course, we will have masks available for those who want to wear them. And I'm sure there are other things also, but we'll be talking about that and we will certainly let you know. Um, if you want to know the latest about the COVID virus uh, from our own Dr. Don, uh, you can go online and see the COVID-19 update. Click on that link and that will get it to you also. Anyway, interesting times and uh, to God be the glory. Not, not worried about it at all all. Matter of fact, um, looking forward to what good things are going to come of it. Whenever the children of Israel had to be um, quarantined for a time, like say uh, during the Passover, when they were told to go in the house and don't come out, um, when they did come out after they got the all clear, things were better, newer, fresher, and more exciting. I expect the same thing after this. All right, uh, guys, um, we are in going to be now, our, our, our base scripture is going to be in Romans chapter 12. We are in a second part of a two-part series entitled Lights and Perfection. Those words come from the Old Testament describing the Urim and the Thummim, which were very interesting Hebrew words in Exodus chapter 8. Uh, these were, scholars think, two stones that were kept in the pockets of a breastplate attached to the ephod of the high priest, and he was the only one to get to have a pair of these rocks. We learned that uh, these were most likely colored stones, one white, one black, and they were used to determine the will of God. Um, now that's an interesting thing. I mean, it almost sounds like it was a walking magic eight ball, right? You know, God, what do you want to do? Pull out two rocks and however they decided, you know, one white maybe, white said yes, black said no, or maybe they were both one side white, the other side black, and however they pulled, I mean, I don't know how they determined it, but it sure seems like uh, something that I would like to have today. 
you know, in a lot of the decisions that I make because of the, all of the wrong ones that I have made. Nevertheless, God has not given us those kind of Urim and Thummim to make our decisions by because he wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. Well, didn't it take some faith to pull out the stones and say that that is God's will and then watch it come to pass? To a certain degree, yeah, but that was only for the high priest. He's the only one that could use that. And the common person really didn't have access to it for the decisions he had to make. High priest was, you know, limited to his locale. He could only be at one place at one time. And if uh, there were office hours where you could go visit the guy for your questions, whatever they may be, um, I guarantee you that you think the DMV is bad? In Arizona, <laughs> you're gonna have a real, I'm sorry, if you work at the DMV, I totally apologize for that crack. But it, it, it is sort of a stereotype, isn't it? So God has made a better way, all right? Now I mentioned last Sunday that some believers approach finding the will of God like a cosmic Easter egg hunt. Like his will is hiding under a bush in some distant galaxy far, far away. Um, I think, well, I'm sorry, I, don't, I think some see discerning the will of God uh, is like doing common core math. You got that equation up on the board there, Vinny? Um, is it there? Yeah, there it is. Cool. Um, common core math is something that only a few really understand. And I know a lot of parents who have had to homeschool their kids during this quarantine are pulling their hair out because I, there's nothing common about it. And at the core of it is just frustration, right? And then there are those who take a superstitious tack to finding out the will of God. There was a book written in the 70s by a pastor and his wife called You Can Know the Will of God. And it had stories of ways people would discern God's will. They tell of a lady who had a lifetime ambition to go to Israel, you know, and she got hold of a pamphlet of a, an Israel tour and she looked at it and she looked at the price and when it was going to happen and she could more than afford it and she had all the free time in the world, but she just wasn't sure that it was God's will that she goes. And she kept worrying about it and thinking about it and wondering about it on and on and on. And one night before she went to bed, she reread the pamphlet and found out that they were going to travel to Israel on a 747 jumbo jet. Well, she went to sleep, and when she woke up the next morning, she looked at her digital clock, and guess what time it was? 747, and that clinched it for her. She went on the trip. All right, whatever floats your boat, right? Then there's this gentlemen who used what they call the open window method in seeking God's will. You know, you find a breeze or you turn on a fan and you open your Bible to it and watch the pages flip and then you stop it and then you point to a verse. Well, he pointed to Matthew 27, 5, where it says Judas went and hanged himself. All right. And that disturbed him, obviously. Right. And so he did it again. Let it turn, stopped it, put his finger on a verse, and it was Luke 10, 37. Jesus said, go and do likewise. 
All right, now he's really starting to freak out, and so he does it one more time, and he stops on John 13, 27, what you do, do quickly. Did he, did he actually carry it out? No. <laughs> but he probably could hear Jesus chuckling in the background. You know, hey, Bubba, you going to do that to me again? <laughs> right? There is a better, more sure way for the child of God to know the will of God. Now, before I go any further, I want you to do this. And guys who are here, please write this, this question out somewhere in your Bible, on a piece of paper, or whatever. I'm sure you brought something to take notes on. I want to know God's will concerning, then fill in the blank. I want to know God's will concerning. Now, when we're talking about the Urim and the Thummim, the lights and the perfection, and also known as the manifestation and the truth. We're talking about making life-changing decisions here. We're not talking about whether you should buy Skippy or Peter Pan, smooth or chunky. Okay, those kind of decisions are like, you know, whatever you want to do. But what about since we've had this crisis now and financially you might be strapped, is it Time to move. Do I need to go back home or move to another state? Or perhaps it's, you know, should I marry? Or how am I going to get by financially? What should I do? Maybe you're thinking more spiritually. Should I become a missionary? Or common question I had from my high schoolers at the Christian school was, uh, what college should I choose? Harvard, Yale? <laughs> um, what career path should I go on? And then there are some of the real serious, heart-wrenching decisions that you might have to make. Should I put my parents in a nursing home? Um, should I get involved with the conflict between my mother and my husband? And then, of course, there are the clash questions. You know what the clash questions are? You're in a bad relationship, a non-marital bad relationship, okay? Or just a difficult, dead-end job, and you're asking the clash question, should I stay or should I go? Some of you will get that. Some of you like, you know, move on. All right. So write down what's consuming your thoughts that you're indecisive about. And after we go through this study, I want you to filter that question through what you learned. All right? We're good? All right. A little bit of background. In the Old Testament, God spoke his will through the writings of Moses, through the prophets whom he consecrated to be his spokesmen. And we saw last week, and I mentioned it earlier, the two stones, the Urim and Thurim the lights and perfection, and also the manifestation and truth. So if you're taking notes, that's a, another um, two words describing the Urim and the Thurim. What does God use today? Are there writings? Well, of course. You've got the entire 
inspired word of God from Genesis to Revelation, and it's full of principles and precepts and promises that gives you insight for living. How many times have you heard me say that? Too many times. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us what to do, what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful in showing us the truth and exposing to us his will. Are there prophets today? Yeah, well, mainly Jesus is the prophet that we follow. Um, but there are those who have been spiritually gifted to the church as prophets. Ephesians 4.11. These um, are people who foretell the word of God rather than predict what's going to happen. And he's also given pastors and teachers and counselors and good godly friends that will speak into your life words of knowledge and wisdom and they help you understand, although not determine, what God's will is for you, right? But what about the Urim and the Thummim, the lights and perfection, the manifestation and the truth? Well, yes, we got that too. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There's your light. Then Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. John 14, 9. So there you have the lights and perfection. John 14, 9, he tells Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip asked him, manifest the Father to us. Show us the Father, right? He says, well, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. He manifests the Father. And also in John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you have him as the manifestations and the truth. And the Holy Spirit? Well, he was given to us by Christ, wasn't he? When you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells you that the Spirit came to live and dwell within you. He was given to us to be our helper, to be our teacher, to be our comforter. And uh, what Jesus was to the disciples, the Holy Spirit is to us today. Did Jesus lead the disciples always in the will of God? Ab the answer is yes, absolutely, okay? Absolutely he did. And therefore, the Holy Spirit will too. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is the one who knows the mind and the will of God, and he is our comforter, our teacher, and our guide. All right? You following all of this so far? All right. So if you're asking, will they show you the will of God for your life, what do you think? Absolutely, he's going to show us the will of God for our lives. Now, the key to this, and I love this because in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I know you've all turned to, you have two verses specifically telling you that it is God's will for you to know God's will. And it's also the key to knowing his will. Look at verse 1. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here it is, guys. Don't fall asleep. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice that in verse 2, the second part of it, it's God's will that you discern his will. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Berean Study Bible renders the second half of verse 2 like this. That you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, this is just a personal opinion here, and I'd be glad to talk to you about it, but I don't really think that there are three wills of God. Some people see three wills of God in here, a good, an acceptable, a good, and a perfect will. But I think all of the will of God is perfect, and it's good, and it's pleasing. So I think it's just talking about the will of God completely for our lives. Okay, but how do you discern it? How do you perceive it? How do you distinguish God's will from your will? How do you differentiate what he wants you to do, think, say, speak, go, versus your own opinion or the world's opinion? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you three principles, all right? Number one is to be a living sacrifice, totally surrendered to his will. Secondly, renew your mind and keep on renewing your mind. And thirdly, discern and do his will. Go and do it. All right, what do you mean, Pastor? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Here's the beginning. Let's say that you understand for the first 11 chapters, Paul's been describing all the mercy and grace that God has poured out on you. And you understand it and you appreciate it. Then he says, because of those mercies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice in the New Testament is a picture of the Old Testament burnt offering. They would take an animal. This is not a, a sacrifice for your sins. This is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of love, of I want to give this to you. It's a choice that you give. And the animal would become and it would be slaughtered. And then it would be put on the altar and it would be burnt. I mean, totally, completely burnt. Like the way my grandfather used to cook bacon till it turned into charcoal, okay? completely consumed, and no one could eat of that. Um, no one could eat my grandfather's bacon either, <laughs> but I tried. No one could eat of it. It was just for him and him alone. Get it? All right. It's an exclusive, willing sacrifice. And, and Paul's saying, do that with your body. Give your body freely and exclusively to God. Well, what does that mean, to give my body? You mean, is there an altar around here i got to climb up on, and, and are you going to burn me? 
no, 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 no. He's not talking about your flesh, your bones, or your tissue, or your spleen. He's not saying that you've got to carry around a spiritual donor card, okay? David Guzik says it this way, it's best to see the body here as a reference to your entire being. Your entire being. Let's explore that for a moment. Turn to Luke 10, 27. This is a famous passage. I'm sure you're familiar with it, as you are with Romans 12. Jesus is speaking to someone who has asked him, how do I inherit eternal life? And in verse 27, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's your entire being right there, capsulized in one verse. First, he says you've got to love the Lord your God. The word love, the, the root of that is agape, where we get the word agape type of love, which is a love that extends um, affections and desires, but it's not dependent upon affection and desire to give its love. It means to take pleasure in, to long for, to make the object of one's love one's master passion. I, I, I wish I could describe it better for you, but let me repeat that and please write it down in your notes, tattoo it on your heart. To love God is to make God the object of your master passion. A master passion, what you live for. Everything else is secondary. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, a living sacrifice will surrender one's heart, soul, strength, and mind as a demonstration of that agape love won't necessarily feel like doing it, okay? So let's get that out of the way right now. This is not a feeling choice, this is a faith choice. You do it for the same reason God created you, because he wanted to. And that's the way we choose to love God, because we want to, we make that choice. So first thing we're gonna do is surrender our heart. And remember the end goal here, okay? I don't want to get lost in the details. Discerning God's will for your life. In whatever context you find yourself in need, that's what this is about. So the heart refers to your desires, your affections, your passions, your impulses, regardless of how you feel. And it surrenders his heart to God. Job 11.13, great verse. Surrender your heart to God and turn to him in prayer. That is the uh, contemporary English version. Surrender your heart to God. Set your affections on him. Make the Lord your master passion, the center of your desires and feelings and affections and passions and impulses. I might have a gentleman that I uh, don't know very well, don't like him, don't dislike him, don't love him, don't not love him, don't really know him. So I may choose to set some affection on him, 
It's his birthday, so I Facebook him. Dude, happy birthday. He writes back, thank you. And then, you know, I might think, well, you know, uh, I've been reading some of his posts. Uh, hey, you wanna get together for a cup of coffee? Yeah, what am I doing? I'm expressing my desire to get to know him. And then as the relationship grows, then I find all my emotions going from what we might call indifference at first to all of a sudden one of, hey, you're pretty cool, I like you. I wanna to get to know you better, right? So surrender your heart to God. And, and remember, uh, you may not be all into God right now, but it's not a feeling choice, it's a faith choice. Your feelings will follow. Second, the living sacrifice surrenders his strength. Now, I know the soul is supposed to come next, but we're gonna save that for last and I'll show you why. The living sacrifice surrenders his strength. Now, when you think of strength, you think of um, bodily strength typically, right? You know, how big are your biceps? Um, how big are your calves and your thighs? Massive muscles. I saw a guy on YouTube, um, he deadlifted 1,000 pounds, 1,100 pounds, deadlifting. Deadlifting is when you just pick it up or off the floor, you bend over, you grab the bar, and you stand up straight. I would bend over, try to grab that bar, and if I stood up straight, my arms would pop off. I'd be like Mr. Potato Head on uh, Toy Story. But the strength that he's speaking of here, when you look up this word, which is iskus, iskus in the Greek, it literally and figuratively refers to your moral strength and integrity. Yeah, it can be used as your bodily strength, but according to the complete word study dictionary, it's referring to your moral strength and integrity. With every fiber of your righteous character, such as it is, love God with all of your moral strength. Well, what's moral strength? It's your ability to first of all discern what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, right? And then to do the good and not do the bad, to choose the good and not do the bad. Now, we have different scales of that according to each individual. Before I began really following Christ, you know, I, I would not call myself a thief, but I was. Um, uh, my dad wanted me at one time to charge a gentleman for a transmission that we didn't put in his car. And I wouldn't do that. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty great moral strength right there. But I had absolutely no problem pulling out three or four bucks for lunch out of the till, you know, and you know, it's dad's money, it's, it's thief. So obviously I'm not quite as strong as I think I am. And of course you may li listen to that and think both of those are just horrid and, and you're just, you know, rocked in your seat right now. How, pastor, how could you? That was before Christ, okay? This is after Christ now. Well, the thing is, is as you grow closer to God, you become more morally aware. And then when you choose the right, regardless of the, of the consequences, you become morally strong. You become morally strong, okay? So love him with all of your righteous character, such as it is. And doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, 
whether you are Mother Teresa or part of the Gambino family, all right, start wherever you are and love him with whatever you got, okay? Third principle in leading you to know the will of God is to surrender your mind, what you think and how you think. Uh, I read a, a, a meme that says, what consumes your mind controls your life. What consumes your mind controls your life. How many of you are consumed by your thoughts before you go to bed at night? And it controls your sleep? Absolutely, right? The Bible says in Philippians 4.8, whatever things are true, honest, just, and pure, and lovely, think on these things. Meditate on these things. Chew on these things. Let those things be the things that consume your thoughts. Now, you think about that verse and you think about how much media you consume and you realize that, that you've got competing factors here. And um, what is influencing you right now? What do you think about things that you know aren't right? What is the media influencing you to think about? The Bible says you'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind, your mind, is stayed on you, right? Um, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you think often about Jesus? Is he just a, a Sunday morning proposition or a Wednesday night proposition? Um, do you think on his precepts and the principles that you find in his book, The Word of God? Uh, where do you let your mind wander to? What fantasies play on the screen of your imagination? I don't think I have to go far to convince you that there are competing forces at work inside of you. One is demonically inspired and one is God, divinely inspired. So the thing here is don't let the devil corrupt your mind. Keep your mind on him. Now Paul said an interesting thing in, in Corinthians that we possess the mind of Christ. He didn't say I possess, he said we possess the mind of Christ. Let me ask you, does Jesus need therapy in your life? <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I won't go there. Let this mind be in you, Philippians 2, 5, which was also in Christ Jesus. That mind that was in Christ Jesus was a mind of humility, a mind of submitting himself to the will of the Father. Who did the will of the Father perfectly? Jesus. And humility is part of that. If you've got an arrogant, proud attitude, you're going to find it very difficult to do the will of God because you got it all covered. So the living sacrifice that wants to know the will of God surrenders his mind to the Lord. Now the fourth principle in presenting your body as a living sacrifice is surrendering your will. And I'll show you why I saved this for last. This is the crux of the issue. The will, your prerogative in making decisions or restraining yourself from doing something you desire to do. It's your inner two-year-old, okay? That's saying, I want it, and by gosh, I'm gonna get it, right? Or I do it myself, or no. Is that what two years say all the time? No, no. The will is where the emotions, 
the moral convictions and the intellect intersect and decisions flow from that convergence. Let me say it again, okay? The will is where the emotions, the moral convictions, and the intellect intersect and decisions flow from their convergence. You want to know the will of God for your life. Well, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are a living sacrifice, which means you've got to come to this place every day. Sometimes hour by hour and sometimes moment by moment. But great things will come of your life. George Mueller, how many of you know that name? George Mueller, right? He cared for 10,000, over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. He provided educational opportunities for orphans to the point that he was even accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in British life. Of course, this is back in the 1800s, right? He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000. Well, this is back in the times of Charles Dickens. If you remember Dickens, right? Uh, what did Scrooge say? Don't we have government housing for these orphans? Let them take care of it. And basically, it was just a, a slow, painful death for these kids. Well, he never took a dime from anybody. He never solicited a dime from everybody. He received many offerings. I don't want to misunderstand that. He totally depended upon God's answer to prayer. In a tribute to his life, the Bristol Times reported that during the days of George Mueller in Bristol, agnosticism dared not raise its head. His life was a testament to the reality of a true and living God. All right? Well, this is what he said. I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do God's will, whatever it may be. All right, great principle. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Get to that place where your heart is in such a state that it has no will of its own. Present your bodies, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, completely surrendered to God. And it's not too far from there that you will discover God's will. As that uh, chef used to say from, from New Orleans, guaranteed. All right? And by the way, this whole process that you're going through in presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, loving Him with your entire being, um, this is causing holiness to develop within your life. This is what holiness is. Okay. And Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue holiness without which you won't see God. 
And the word see there doesn't mean necessarily to literally look upon and gaze upon and see, but it means to comprehend. You're not going to comprehend his purposes. You're not going to comprehend his will without holiness. How do I get holiness? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? So before we go any further, are you willing to discern his will? Are you willing to let Jesus dominate your life? To be your master passion? Are you willing to surrender to Christ? And are you willing to let Christ be the Lord of your life? Something we'll come back to at the end of the service. Okay, number next. You've presented your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. You're loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Next step is renew your mind. Sort of has to do with loving him with all your mind, but this is something you're going to have actively do over and over and over again. Look at Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't let the world pressure, pressure you into its mold. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So first, don't be conformed. Apostle says, do not conform to this world. Do not fashion your thinking after the pattern of the world. Don't confirm or conform your ways of decision making to the way the world makes its decisions. Eugene Peterson put it this way. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. And, and I must tell you that as I, I look out there, I think there are too many of our brothers and sisters who do just this. Um, what are no-brainers for the world are not necessarily no-brainers for Christians. Popular culture and the world's manner of thinking is under the influence of the God of this world, Satan. And he is in rebellion against God and will try to press you into his ungodly mold. And what we're saying here, what Paul is saying here, is that process must be resisted. Let me give you a couple examples. Back in my days of high school, if you found a couple that were living together outside of marriage, uh, cohabitating together, um, it was close to being a scandal. Okay, I mean, it was towards you know, the end of the 60s and the sexual revolution, so things were loosening up, if you might. But today it's worldwide and it's increasingly becoming more so that way. And probably in a generation or two, marriage is going to be pretty much extinct. Matter of fact, it may come a time, and the Bible predicts it, that they will forbid people to marry. Okay, everybody's an autonomous individual. Well, what I predict, and this is my opinion, is that we're going to devolve into a type of tribalism where people will further segregate into small tribes with their own set of right and wrong values. And the government will determine ultimately that it needs to step in and claim at least the children as its own. And matter of fact, that's been predicted since 1989, I can tell you. They belong to the state. Now, I see many high-profile Christians. I'm talking about entertainers, 
and, and sports figures who spout their testimony during their interview after winning the big game where they give God the glory and we're all going, all right, it's good to see them do that, right? But then they, they, they praise God for helping them with their success and their career in life, but then they flaunt the doctrines of marriage and holiness. And I don't even think they know it. I don't even think that they have any clue that that's what's happening here and nor do I think they would care even if they did have a clue. Another example is the humor of this world. Um, that's the door where a lot of this comes in. If you can make something non-threatening and humorous, you're more likely to let it slip into the back of your mind. Humor of this world is crass, crude, morally objectionable to the Christian. Have you noticed how common the F word has become? Um, even out of the mouths of our elementary school kids. It, it's just, I mean, George Carlin used to describe the F word as the mother of all cuss words, right? And the question I have is, where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? But to the culture, it's a no-brainer. To the Christian, the Bible says, don't let unwholesome, foul, profane, or worthless, or vulgar words ever come out of your mouth. And in Ephesians 5.4, it says, let there be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse, obscene, or vulgar joking, because such things are not appropriate for believers, but instead speak of your thankfulness to God. You get it? This is all part of the renewing of your mind, transforming your mind, and not thinking like the world. And why are things not morally objectionable to the world? Well, it's because they feel right. You have a hard time convincing someone that something is wrong when they feel that it's so right. Have you noticed that? And that's the problem with many Christians today is that they order and determine God's will for their lives based on how they feel rather than upon propositional truth. Ravi Zacharias said, today's generation listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. The world determines what's right and wrong, what's truth, what's a lie, what's moral, what's immoral, what's good, what's bad by how it feels, what the emotions they have about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with evaluating how you feel. I mean, haven't you evaluated how you feel about the quarantine? Yeah. That's not right or wrong, how you feel. It's how they dictate your attitude and behavior and outlook on life. Life by feeling will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores the renewing of the mind. All right? So if you're not going to allow your mind to be renewed, but you think that you've already presented your body as a living sacrifice, you need to think again. All right? Because you're going to have to change the way you think. I don't know who said this, but he says, God is never against feelings. He is a God of powerful and passionate feeling. Yet when feelings dominate one's thinking, then one has an insufficient foundation for the Christian life. Now, the Holy Spirit says in Romans 12, too, that we are to transform. We're not to conform. We're to transform. And the form of the Greek word for transform is that we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. If you Google the definition of metamorphosis, you get this. The process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form in two or more 
distinct stages. Notice that. Transformation from an immature form to an adult form. We are to transform our way of thinking from an immature form to an adult form by the process of renewing our mind. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. It's a process. So renew your mind if you want to know God's will for your life. Fill yourself with truth. Fill yourself with God's principles, his tenets, his teachings, his doctrine. Read and study and devour the word. And when you've done those two things, when you've surrendered your heart, when you have, are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, living as a living sacrifice to the best of your ability, and you are habitually filling your mind with the truth of God's word, then you will, second half of verse 2, guys, look at it so you know that I'm not lying to you. You will prove the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. See, you've done already nine-tenths of the work needed to know what God's will for your life, whether you should get married, whether you should move, whether you should put mom or dad in a home, whether you should change your career. You will discern what is the good and pleasing, perfect will of God. Look at the principles of God's word. Look at your commitment and your surrender to his will. Put it together. Cook it up. Taste it. Now you have God's will right there. What does it say in the Psalms? Taste of the Lord and see that he is he's good. That's right. Your surrender to God's spirit and the filling of God's word allows you to discern God's will. Your surrender to God's spirit and the filling of God's word allows you to discern God's will. Now you're free to explore the impulses you have. <laughs> how many of you would like to explore your impulses? Or how many of you are thinking, whoa, dude, pastor, you don't want me following my impulses. I can't afford an attorney. <laughs> Not those impulses. I'm talking about the impulses that we have in guard to God's will. When he's your master passion and you're giving him your life, you're studying his word and you're thinking his thoughts, you're ready to make what we call redeemed decisions. All right? Decisions that are based upon desire. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Did we not just talk about delighting yourself in the Lord by offering yourself up as a living sacrifice and renewing your mind? Well, then he will plant the desires, his desires, into your heart. And they become impulses, and you can act on those now. You can act on those. You can be sure that they are God-ordained and spirit-led. Isaiah 30, 21 says, Your ear shall see, hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. This is the voice of your conscience, that invisible guide. John Corson says, This is that quiet voice that cannot be heard in the hustling, bustling, and scheming to which we are so vulnerable. 
What a joy it is to take a significant portion of time to be quiet before God. For it is then that we hear his word in our ears saying, this is the way, walk in it. Sounds like he was a little Mandalorian, I don't know. But what we're saying here is sell out to God wholeheartedly. Make him your master passion. Seek him with your whole heart. Surrender completely to his will. Actively, habitually seek to transform your mind with his word. And then, guys, go do his will. Just go do it. St. Augustine said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do as you please. That's dangerous, man. That's like handing my 10-year-old the keys to my car, a credit card, and um, a gun, loaded gun. <laughs> no, not if you're loving the Lord. You're totally surrendered. You're under control. Your mind is renewed. You can make redeemed decisions. But what if you make a mistake? Aren't we always afraid of making a mistake? Don't we check and double check and double check if this is God's will, right? Like the guy flipping through the scripture, did he really want me to kill myself? Revelation 3.7, turn there, guys. And um, we're almost done here so we can get to the communion. I think I've uh, taken a little bit too much time. I apologize. Thank you for your grace. These things say he who is holy and who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The key of David is an Old Testament allusion to the absolute sovereignty of God in opening doors and shutting doors. And we're talking about doors of opportunity here, as it were, in knowing his will. He has the administrative power and the uncontestable control. Whatever doors are open for you will not be shut, and whatever doors he shuts on you, you're not going to be able to open. Point is, is he's got your back. You're afraid of making a mistake. You're going to find out that decision you make, no matter how it turns out, will have not been a mistake. But if you're still insecure, one more verse, and I'll close with this. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your heart. The word translated rule there is a Greek word that describes an official, an athletic event, like an umpire. And he calls safe, he calls out, he calls yes, he calls no. The peace of God. Should I move? Should I take that job? Should I marry them? What's your heart tell you guys? you're walking with the Lord, the peace of God will be that umpire and tell you, yes, no, go, stay, safe, out. Now, don't move without the peace of God umpiring and ruling in your heart. Don't move. All right, here we go. Real quick here and, and worship team coming up. Here's our reflections. Number one, all of Jesus' teachings are here in the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God to guide the child of God. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to guide the child of God. 
Number two, the child of God has the responsibility to present himself as a living sacrifice, loving the Lord with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number three, in that completely surrendered state, the child of God grows up in their thinking. They mature by renewing their minds with the word of God. And then number four, now they're able to discern God's will, ready to make redeemed decisions. Sometimes stepping out with great desire, sometimes stepping out with some great impulse, but always in line with God's word, never contradicting it. And when all is said and done, if there's still a question, then they let the peace of God rule in their hearts. All right? Remember what I asked you to write down at the beginning of the sermon? All right. I want you to take that concern and filter it through the teaching that I just gave you. See what you come up with. And I would really love to hear the story. I would really love to hear what decisions you were struggling with and how God led you in his direction so that you would perform his will. Okay? All right. Um, let's prepare for communion. At home there, if you will go ahead and get your elements and distribute them to the family and the worship team, why don't you go ahead and we'll actually take it after this song here. Okay. I hope, the elements of the body and the blood of Christ. And whether it is a wafer and some juice or a tortilla chip and some soda, 
it really doesn't matter because what matters is the communion part. The communion is the partaking of it together with one another. Like I keep seeing all over the place, we're all in this together. And we are in this together. And Paul said that we will do this till he comes. I think the signs are very clear. He is at the door. And when we see the signs of his coming, we are to look up because our redemption is drawing near. So it is with that thought and that heart we partake this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that enables us to fellowship with one another and to learn of you, the true, the living God, the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, our creator God. You are so past finding out, but yet you reveal yourself. And I thank you and I give you praise for that. So Father, we, we did a study today about discerning your will. So I ask you to search us and to know our hearts and to try us and to know our thoughts and to see if there be any way of pain within us and lead us in the way everlasting. I pray that you would use the message to clear away the fog and the clutter of all the things that would obscure your clear and unmistakable leading. And may you give us the grace for unwavering, absolute obedience to your will. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Shall we partake, guys? We're going to close with one more worship song, and I just want to say the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you, give you peace, fulfill his good purpose in you, and open your eyes to all the will of God. Amen. Amen.